Well, again, a hearty good morning to you, and so excited to be here with uh, you in in the context, too, of not only the fellowship that we might have, but the study of God's Word, that it might be, we might take this into our heart, and that it might be the cause, really, of just greater love for Christ. He's worthy of it, right? Well, I want to welcome you back to First Peter. Um, we have been away for a while, and so this is also exciting. So please turn to chapter 3, and I'll try to connect us back to our study of First Peter. Now, we, we stopped back in December, and so you might need just a little bit of refresher's course. Now, in fact, um, he already read the text just a little bit ago. What I would like to do is just point out a few words as sort of hooks for you. We are in verses 13 through 17. But will you notice in verse 13 the word harm? In verse 14, the word suffer. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Notice in verse 14, their intimidation. Verse 15, notice a defense. And then in verse 16, the thing in which you are slandered and those who revile your good behavior. And then verse 17, that you suffer for doing what is right. Listen, beloved, they're after you. They are after you. And I don't know about you, but it is never a comfortable thought to know that you have people after you. Sometimes you say they're after you and you you start to, the first thought maybe comes to taxes or something. It's like, oh no, what did I not file? You know, know, uh oh, you know, am I good there? They're after you. In this context, we're not talking about the IRS. We are talking about world. The world is after you. If you live God's way, if you make life all about pursuing Christ, you will be a target for them. If you seek first his kingdom and take up the cross and make life all about doing what you do because you love Christ, They will be after you. It will happen. All over the scripture, we're reminded of that. We always have to be reminded of that when the writers say things like, you know, what does light have in common with darkness? What fellowship is there? 2 Corinthians 6. We're always reminded of that. Oh yeah, that's right. The reason why this feels so uncomfortable is because we belong to two different kingdoms. We're connected differently. You're going to face hostilities if you would be one that would make it your aim to love Christ. If your life aim is to be a follower of Christ, 
The good news is eternity has opened up to you. The difficult news for you to hear is they're coming after you. Now that is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. And Peter here says you are going to need a kind of defense for that. Not the kind of defense that you sometimes hear of so many people having. That is, where we act so defensive that we're kind of, uh, I guess you would call it spiritual jerks. I mean, you know, we don't want to be that. But you're going to need a kind of defense. What is your strategy when they come after you? That's our text. Now I've titled this Lines of Defense Against a Hostile World. And I think you can see from the words uh, that I shared with you or pointed out to you from 1 Peter 3 where I got that from. But I need to take us back into this letter to see why Peter wants to talk about our defense strategy. Maybe I can borrow a sports analogy. I spend a little bit of my time giving it to uh, coaching young ones. Uh, Sometimes I wonder about that (laughs) as uh, I'm reminded, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know, there's that level of thinking. But if I can borrow a sports analogy, sometimes a good offense can come from a good defense. In other words, sometimes a good defense really helps out the offense. And you think of it this way, if they can't score points on you, then you have a chance, right? And all you need to do is just score a few. We're talking about here in this text, being secure. Our securities when the world comes after us. Feeling secure, feeling stable. So what is our offense? If if a good defense can produce a good offense, what is our offense? Let me show you. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12, and let's remind ourselves of the offense. He says that they may, because of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's the offense. In other words, that on the day of judgment, the ones who hated you would be with you glorifying God. They used to hate you. They used to be against you. They used to be hostile against you. But now they're with you in glorifying God. How so? They they became believers. They became Christians. They join the team. How did God turn them into God glorifiers? Salvation, that's how. And so our defense becomes offense when God uses it to save people. That's why this is important. 
That's why this is important. In other words, we're giving you more to put into your strategy on how you can bring the gospel to your neighbor or to that person, that family member that you just love and you want to see know the Lord. Now this is so important for us today. Peter is giving these Christians scattered in churches all over the place, scattered because the world is hostile against them. And so Peter is giving these Christians encouragement. I think as we go deeper, I mean, it's not hard to see that today we live in a day where things are quite polarized. And I really believe that more than ever, the church, a true church, the pastor at a true church is going to be preaching to battered saints. There's going to be a great need for encouragement. Peter knew that. That's why he said what he said. And he is giving these Christians encouragement. It's, it's pressure in their face, trials, rejection, intimidation to conform Insults for not conforming. Maybe to put it in the 21st century social media vernacular, it's the cancer, cancel culture. I guess you could say cancer culture too. It's the canceling. Not allowing you to have a voice because your voice doesn't sound like their voice. So believers face great trouble and persecution today in that way, and it's going to heat up. I'm telling you, the Lord tells us it's coming. And this is, the, by the way, actually the crux of what Peter has wanted to deal with, starting in chapter 3, verse 13. In fact, now listen to this. You could say that everything that Peter has actually said up to this very point has just been introduction. Do you know that? Just introductory points and thoughts and building blocks to be able to just say what he wants to say. Starting here in 3.13, he begins to now just put it right out there. And so he's been preparing them for this message, how to deal with the world's heat. I suppose you could say that parenting is that, isn't it? I mean, you spend all those years parenting to let them know, hey, listen, and gradually you sort of just let them into the world that way. You don't want them to be of it, but if they're going to they're gonna be in it. They've got to be. It's going to happen. And it's sort of a preparation to get them there so that when they're in the heat, they know what to do. Everything up to now, you could, you could call just parenting. Starting in chapter 3, verse 13, this is the releasing of the kids into the world. That's what this is. And so you have people 
that are against you. They're hostile to you. You can feel it. They don't agree with how you go about things. They don't agree with how you think, with how you problem solve, with what you value. They don't agree. They want to be your contrarians all over the place. You have to consider how you're going to respond to that. Now, you remember Peter starts his letter by reminding them about their identity in Christ as Christians. So let's go over this just a little bit. In chapter 1, verse 1, he's, he calls them the chosen. I told you that was the real chosen right there. We went over that. When God placed you in Christ for salvation, he set aside an inheritance for you. And that's your future. And, and, it, and he told us that the Lord is protecting it now for you. That's wonderful because we look at this world and we say, whoa, if I put my hope in this world, it seems like a, kind of a dubious uh, uh, inheritance. Yeah, that's right. There's a greater inheritance for you that is your future and he's protecting it now for you in other words whatever this life is what you have coming is is greater and it's all tied into the value of redemption chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 and you get to chapter 2 verse 9 and you see that when god saved you he put you into a community of people called the church And he calls us the holy, uh, holy nation. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Chosen race. It's so interesting that he calls individual believers in chapter 1, verse 1, the chosen. And then he gets to chapter 2, verse 9, and it's a collection of those chosen. Why tell us that we're all of this so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, so that you and I would make much of Jesus Christ. Do you notice that he calls the, talking about Jesus, his excellencies? Boy, sometimes I wonder if we, if we forget that. When people hear us talk about Jesus Christ, they should come away going, whoa, you make it sound like he's royalty or something. That's right. You make it sound like he's the king of kings or something like that. Like he's some kind of big shot. And you're getting it. You might, I think you're starting to hear what I'm, what I'm saying. That's right. So that you would tell others just how amazing Jesus Christ is. How excellent he is. And you know what? He could be excellent for you too. You coming to see him that way. Now, how are we going to be able to do that? He tells us by being placed in the world, but not being of the world. What's the Lord's plan to accomplish that? By getting you in connection with some vital relationships with the lost in this world. You remember how we're supposed to see ourselves? Chapter 2, verse 11. As strangers. Strangers. See, I've always been told I'm a strange person. 
Thanks for confirming that. No, not that kind of stranger. <laughs> Strangers, that is not, you know, that you don't remind the world of somebody that belongs to it. It might be that they say about you, you're weird. Okay. And I think, the, you know, the church maybe has taken it such the wrong way. We make ourselves weird by things we either wear or do or say in the wrong way. He has called us to be aliens, but not the kind where we shelter from the world, the kind that has certain kind of relationships with the world. What kind? Well, you have the governing authorities, relationship with the governing authorities, the government there, okay? With your employers, what's that look like? And even then in our marriages, why? Why is it important that we focus on the relationships that we have with people in all of those spheres? He tells us to save them. We might be vessels for salvation. To reach them with the gospel. That is the focus in all three spheres. Proclaim Christ. Keep your behavior excellent around them. Why? Because that's how God will reach them with the gospel. He will convince them in their hearts that the message of the gospel is true when they see the transformation of your life. That's why we talk about the fact that, listen, it's not helpful if you're like them. Love and light in the dark places where there's usually hate. See, That's what they need. And then you get to chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And Peter says, generally speaking, it should look like this. This is the kind of attitude that should resonate with you in your interactions with people. Harmonious. Right? Brotherly. We're not looking to be these contrarian people. We're looking to actually attach to people in a brotherly sort of way. Like-minded. Whoa, I thought we're supposed to be only like-minded with believers. Well, it's true, but boy, when you can do all that you can to connect, humble in spirit, no revenge, no retaliation, loving life. Now watch this. So how's the world going to respond to that? They're going to be hostile. They're going to be hostile. Not because they don't like the benefits of all those things. Because as soon as they understand and know you are connected to Christ, they're not going to like that. You'll live for Christ, the world will react to it, and then you will need to trust the Lord to get victory the right way when that happens. Why? Because He will use it all to make the gospel come to life for them. This is really exciting. 
I can't tell you how much Peter urges throughout this letter us to get ourselves in the world but not be of it. Not to be, not to be afraid to be in that world but to be used. When you go in there, you're going to need to know that they will come after you and they will react to you if you live like chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 12 tells us how to live. So the question then is this, how will you respond to them, that is, to their reaction? Peter gives six lines of defense against the world's hostilities. Let me, uh, let me challenge you this way, though. We all respond differently to hostility against us. For some people, when hostility comes after them, it's flight. Excuse me, it's fight. Some people fight. Some of you are going to try to make the other side look bad. You're fighters, and so, you know what? You're going to say this. Well, I'm going to say that. You try to show that you're not crazy for believing the gospel, and so you fight. Others will handle hostility by flight. And so you run away from it. There's intimidation that comes and you cower. And you let it close your mouth. And you let it shut you down. And you shy away from it. Still others, it might not be fight for you, it might not be flight. For you, you might just be paralyzed. and So for you, it's fright, right? And you let the fears make you say Or do things that you wouldn't normally do and it looks like compromise. But you know in your heart that you're in a bad spot and you don't want to be doing it, but you do it. Or you say it. So what should it be? Peter says, it should be triumph. It should be joy. It should be confidence. And I'll tell you, beloved, if you haven't paid attention... The hostility is here in America for holding to a kind of Christianity that sticks tight to the Bible. It's not enough for us to say that we're Christians. We have to be clear. We are Bible-defined Christians. The aim of the typical social media forum is to show that Christianity is a bunch of dogmatic, narrow, closed-minded people who are extremists akin to Nazis and Hitler's. I just heard that just this last week. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm not just pulling it out of the air. Peter gives the born-again ones lines of, lines of defense against the world's hostilities. We could call these principles for security and stability when the world brings the worst. What are they? Six of them. Let's start with number one, passion for the good. Passion. Each one of these would really just be one single word to kind of have to be hooks on this line of defense. But I put in the brackets there other words for you to kind of know what we're talking about. Passion for the good. Now, the first one, Peter's already told us about who the Christian is. And now, because of that, 
Here's how he can react. Listen, with passion. I like this. But not just passion. Passion for the good. Verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you prove passionate for what is good. It is hard to get hostile against someone who has a passion for doing good. I mean, what can you say about that person? I don't like you doing all this good and even desiring good. Why are you, why are you saying that? You don't like that? People don't talk like that. I mean... I mean, and when they do, it seems out of place. I mean, you know, when a person says to you, can't you just be the bad guy? You know, can't you just desire to do bad for once? When somebody does that, we know they're saying something that's out of place. And so it's kind of difficult to bring harm to a person who is gracious and kind and patient and who listens to others and who serves others and who gives himself sacrificially for the benefit of others. Imagine coming to that person and just wanting to do bad for to that person. Why? You know what kind of people the world harms? The fake. The hypocrites. The pretenders, the arrogant, the frauds, the ones that do bad to orphans and widows and children. The world doesn't mind bringing harm to those people, to the crooked and the criminals. And I tell you what, that right there should tell you something about today's version of Christianity. Because often the world looks at the Christians and say, says to themselves, don't you know better? Shouldn't you be doing better? So what is this good then that Peter is talking about? A passionate zeal for the good. If you want an effective line of defense against the hostility of the world, get passionate zeal for doing the kind of good that even the world would respect generally. We keep reminding ourselves, too, that we do this for one reason, and that is to win people to Christ, to win some to Christ. The world respects unselfishness. It respects honesty, faithfulness. By asking the question, who, who is there to harm you? Peter is just saying, generally speaking, who would want to beat up the guy that desires good? Fascinating word. It is where we get the English word zealot from. You say, what is a zealot? Dictionary tells us it is one who shows zeal, a fanatic. I'll give you, I'll give you another uh, definition that I found. Quote, an immoderate, fanatical, or extremely 
zealous adherent to a cause, especially a religious one, end quote. I think that gets to the heart of it. Now, in the New Testament, during the time of Christ, you had all sorts of groups that that existed out there, religious-type groups, sects, if you will. One of them was was, was a group called the Zealots. And in fact, Matthew 10.4, one of the disciples that Jesus chose was called Simon the Zealot. Same word, Simon the Zealot. These guys called themselves patriots. These were the nationalistic people. Their goal was to liberate Israel from any oppression, especially the oppression that came from Rome or any other groups of doing them as a nation. And so they, they really, you could say they were the purists, right? They, they were all about nationalism, all about, hey, we need to get back to the roots, This word is used all over the place to describe radical political zeal to accomplish something in the name of nationalism for some cause. That's the basic idea of this word for zeal. Okay? You say, so why is that important to know? Because what Peter is saying is, who is there to harm you if you prove to be a zealot for good Who will harm you if you make it your cause just doing good? This is a person who is so passionate about anything good that you could be called a zealot for it. No deceit, nothing shady, just a passion for all things good. And so your first line of defense, be a lover of all that is good. And be passionate for all things good. And it's, it's, I tell you, I mean, how can you get mad at people like this that are consumed with good? And, you know, listen, this is just a general principle. And I say that because Scripture speaks all over the place of people that suffer for doing righteousness. In fact, it's the very next verse we're going to see. That was Job's struggle, right? The righteous who suffers for being righteous. I mean, think about this here. You know, you quote 1 Peter 3.13 to Job. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And Job might say, well, let's see. The devil. uh, I have these three friends, you know. But it's a, it's a general principle, though, about how to handle the world's hostility. That would still be true for Job or anybody. How to handle the trouble the world throws at you for following Christ. So it's a passion to do good for the good. It's, it's not a guarantee that we won't suffer. He's just saying it will be difficult for the world to harm you. You're going to have to sin against love. See, In order to harm you, you're going to have to sin against kindness. You're going to have to sin against forgiveness, against generosity and mercy and forbearance. So that's the first line of defense. Look at the second one. 
call this one privilege. This one is privilege. And by privilege, I mean as a mindset. Look at verse 14. I'll explain this here. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. When Peter says you're blessed, I believe what he means here is you're privileged. In other words, even if you do get harmed, you can see it as a blessing, as a privilege. And again, let's put this into the context here. I mean, you you can't be hostile to a person who has that kind of mindset. I mean, you see suffering as a privilege? It's going to be, it takes all, for the the evil person, it takes all the joy out of it for them. You thought they were going to bring you harm. And you're saying, right? No big deal. This is one who sees suffering as a privilege. Now, let me help you understand, in case you're wondering who would be like this. Well, remember the apostles in Acts 5, verse 40? They flogged them, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. But listen to this in verse 41. Here's their response to that. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Huh? We thought we were going to flog them and they were going to get scared and shrink, but instead they got large and big. Earlier in Acts 4, just listen to this, and you can see their mindset. You got Peter, you have John. They go, they preach the gospel. And that came as right after they had healed the, the lame guy. And then they arrest them. They put them in jail. Peter and John were in prison. They were gagged. They were threatened. And then they were released. So verse 23, they go back to the gathered church. And this is what happened. It says that they, they, they all lifted their voices. And they praised God. But what I want you to do is hear how they praised God. Verse 27. For truly in this city they there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever, they're praying to God, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Huh? And then they keep praying. What would they possibly ask God for? Vengeance? Revenge? Verse 29. Lord, take note of their threats and grant... Here it is. They're going to say, take them out. No. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Say, what about what the bad things that the people did? They don't care. They just say that's their problem. That's their thing. That's them between them and the Lord. We're just going to keep doing what we do. It's like Paul in Acts 14. Remember that? I think it's verse 19 where it says they stoned him to death. And then it says he got up, wiped himself off, and then you know, kind of went to the next town to preach the gospel. 
Aren't you going to go talk to, go, you know, maybe formulate a coalition against things like that and maybe go talk to the, the Bureau of Protection there in, uh, in you know, Galatia? Nope. He doesn't care. What does that have to do with anything? I'm still living. I'm just going to go, I'll just go preach. It doesn't matter. I don't, when you live like a dead person, what are they going to do to you? What can anybody possibly do to you? This is the mindset. First Peter 3, 4, the, the First Peter 3, 14 mindset. Take note of their threats, Lord. Nothing about revenge or God doing anything to the hostiles. Just take note and do whatever you think is right, Lord. But as for us, just make us bold in how we speak. You know what that tells me? They said, no longer go speaking in his name. You know what they say? Lord, make us bolder. We're going to go speak in your name. But we don't mean it to be anything personal against them. We have to obey God rather than man. Back in First Peter 3.14, first few words, but even if you should suffer. Now, that's one of the rarest Greek verb tenses in the Bible. I remember uh, I was in, taking uh, Greek in Bible college and we were learning all kinds of, you know, verbs and tenses and all that kind of stuff. And, and he introduces us to the optative. And this is what the Greek professor says. You will hardly ever see this in your, you know, studying and interpreting of Scripture. So just wanting to let you know what this thing means. Boy, I wish I would have paid more attention, right? As soon as I heard him say, you'll hardly ever use this, burp, turned it off. All right, tell me what I need to know, because you're telling me what I don't need to know. Well, this is the optative. Here we are. If only Professor Bechtel could uh, be here right now. Well, this is a tense. What the optative is, is a tense of great uncertainty. This is like saying maybe. Okay? We have no idea, so maybe. That's what this is. That's why it's, but even if you should suffer. We don't know if you're going to suffer. Maybe. Maybe not. We have no idea. It's like Acts 4. We, we don't know. It's like Daniel 3. Remember that? When they went into, they were putting him into the flames. The friends of Daniel. We will not bow down. And the Lord will be our rescuer. And even if he doesn't rescue us, we're not bowing down. What do you mean by that? What we mean is we have no idea. We pray. We put it in the Lord's hands. We keep moving on. That's how life works. So that's why I'm calling it the privileged mindset. You know... You are so blessed and full of privilege that it just doesn't matter if you suffer. So all your mind is on is the fact that he has blessed the socks off me. I mean, what can I possibly have to say about all the suffering that I'm going through? I mean, the worst thing that could happen with all this suffering is I go to be with Jesus and I kind of think that's better. 
Paul did. Philippians 1, I don't know which thing to decide. You know, do I go to be with the Lord or do I stay here and preach, you know, the gospel to people and, and be here for, with you guys? No offense, the Lord is always better, right? You can't defeat a person like that. I mean, it's always triumph with that person. That kind of person feels like they're they're always going to win. I love, I think I've shared this with you. The uh, Stephen Ambrose was in his book, Band of Brothers, was giving the, um, talking about this true story that happened of a guy that was in a, Foxhole, who was so overwhelmed by the likelihood of death around the corner with all the shells and ammunition and bombs that were being dropped and grenades and so forth. He was so terrified. He was frozen with fear and he wouldn't get out of that foxhole. Then his commanding officer comes to him that was over him and says, hey, and he talks to him through it. And he asks the officer, how do you do it? You just go from thing to thing to thing, which seems like with no fear. He said, it's real simple. I've already concluded that I'm a dead man. And I'm just doing my duty. That's it. I realize death is one moment possibly away. What can I do about that? I'm just going to do my duty. And if you live like you're a dead man, what can they do to you? It's already a blessing. I'm okay with whatever the suffering might come my way. First Peter 2.21 For you have been called to this purpose. What purpose? The same purpose as Jesus. What was his purpose? To commit no sin, no deceit, and suffer while bearing our sins in his body on the cross. It might happen to you. It happened to Jesus. Because he says follow, follow in his footsteps. In other words, obviously you're not going to bear any sins, but the suffering could come. It came to Jesus and he was innocent. What was the blessing for Jesus? Souls. Souls saved. What's our blessing? Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Fellowship with Jesus. Knowing him. Notice too, it is suffering for doing what is right for the sake of righteousness, it says. You are never more like Jesus than when you experience that. In fact, the ones in heaven, are you ready for this? That will be the most blessed will be the ones who have suffered the most for the sake of righteousness. That fellowship will just keep going in heaven. Incredible. Now what's it mean to be blessed? You say, well, I've heard that it means to be happy. Well, there is that. It does, there is that sense and it can mean that, but here I believe it means privileged or honored. 
Let me give you an example of how this word is used. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. This was uh, given to the Beatitudes. Jesus gave it. Uh, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be in the same context as the prophets. To be mentioned in the same breath, right? The more you suffer, the greater the glory. That's the idea. Second Corinthians 4, verse 17, for a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Comparison to what? To the affliction. And so here on the one side you have the affliction and over here on the other side you have the glory and the glory is greater than the affliction but it is commensurate, it is connected, it is tied to it. You have the affliction, you have the beyond glory. More affliction, even greater glory. And he pictures it as scales where one outweighs the other. So you accept the suffering as a privilege, as something that God is using as blessing in your life. That is not easy. But boy, is it amazing. I mean, you don't know how he is using the blessing, it for blessing in your life. You don't know it. But he's saying he is. You can't see beyond the suffering, but when a person is convinced that God meant it for good, even though that person meant it for evil, I mean, what can you do out of hostility against that kind of person? Right? And then Peter does what he always does. He ties it back to the Old Testament. Take a look at this here. See where it says, and do not fear their intimidation nor be troubled. That's a reference to Isaiah 8. It's fascinating. Verses 12 and 13. I love that Peter says, hey, look, hey, I'm I'm Jewish. I like the Old Testament, right? And so he's always back there. But what I want you to do is to to hear how it reads in Isaiah 8. Let me first give you the context here. You got the king of Judah. His name is Ahaz. And uh, you have all these threats around him to take him down, even threats from Israel, the northern part of the kingdom. And so verse 12, you are not to say it is a conspiracy. Don't, don't, don't look at this as what man is doing against you. In regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Now the message to Ahaz, the king, is this. You need to replace your fear and intimidation of people with fear and intimidation of the Lord. The temptation for Ahaz was to give in to the other nations and make alliances with them. And the Lord says, you need to resist that. 
you have enough. You have everything you need to be in this situation. That's why earlier in chapter 7, the Lord says, ask for a sign and it will be given to you. And then he gives them the sign of the virgin birth to come. He says, don't let fear take you in that direction. You don't need to cave into the intimidation that other people bring you with all their hostile pressures. I realize, Ahaz, you can't see victory. You can't see that this will turn out. And all you have is my word, but that's enough. Don't be afraid. Face it with courage, Ahaz. You read church history, and that is the legacy from so many faithful saints that have gone before us. It was the mindset of Luther. It was the mindset of Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Hugh Latimer and John Bunyan, who was 14 years in prison away from his family came to see the Lord's will in it all. There's even a statement that John Bunyan talked about his prison being a precious comfort to him. How do you get to that place? He wrote actually Pilgrim's Progress there. and, And this point from Peter is one that is a mindset that realizes that God uses suffering to shape us spiritually. That's what he's saying here. It becomes home. See, It's a mindset that looks at this earth and says, this isn't it. There's no appeal. There's no comfort here. There's nothing to be gained from all this. All right, let's look at the third line of defense. First one, passion for the good. Second one, privilege as your mindset. Number three, preeminent priority in your heart. Preeminent priority you could say, in your heart. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now this is another line of defense against the world's hostilities. That is, the place that Christ has in your heart. What place does he have in your heart? Peter's back in Isaiah 8, 12 to 13. Isaiah tells Ahaz, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, whom you should Set apart. In other words, set apart Jehovah. Look at all of the hostility that is against you and then put Jehovah on this side and set him apart in comparison to that. Peter then takes that and says, okay, set apart Christ as Jehovah in your hearts. He has to be the priority. Now listen, here's Peter's point. What can they do to you if Jesus Christ is everything to you? What are they going to do to you? It's that, like that song, All I Have is Christ. What are, they, what are you going to do? You can't take Christ away from me. That's why I always kind of was a head-scratcher. I mean, I understood in the, in the uh, 90s when it was... Uh, Prayer in school, and we were so concerned about them taking prayer out of school. And I I get that, but here's the deal. You'll never be able to take prayer away from me, ever. You can't. The Lord has 
call me to pray without ceasing. I'm even so daring and bold enough to pray with my eyes open. I do that. If he has occupied, if Christ has occupied the highest priority, the highest place, the top rank in your heart, what can man do to you? Let's put the context into this thing. It doesn't bother me what man might do. I don't fear him. But you know what does bother me? What the Lord might do to me. That's what bothers me. How he feels. What he thinks of me. You know, you say, well, I'm in Christ. I mean, he's promised to do nothing to me but take care of me and everything. Ephesians 4 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. That bothers me. I don't want to grieve him. I want him to be happy with me. Now, when we talk about sanctifying Christ, by the way, as Lord in your hearts, what he's talking about is affirming the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in your heart. What do you mean by that? That that is that that he can say anything he wants to say to you in your heart. That he can command you. Can Christ command you? Does he have the full access to command you in your heart? That he can say no and it means something to you. And he can say yes and it changes things. He's the Lord in your heart, the Lord over your heart. Now, the word sanctify here means more than just set apart. It means actually to lift up, to to exonerate, to magnify, to give the primary place to a person or thing. This is a person who has said that Jesus Christ has the majestic place of sovereignty that a king would have over a country, but he has that over my heart. It's recognizing the greatness of Christ. And so you submit to Him and you honor Him and you love Him and there's deep loyalty to Him. It's accepting whatever He has brought into your life as the very best thing for you because Jesus Christ is the very best thing. What can man do to you if he comes after you and finds out Jesus Christ owns my heart? I've taken your car. No, you haven't. You've taken the Lord's car. And you better talk to him about that. I've taken your house. No, you haven't. That's the Lord's house. And he owns my whole heart. That means he owns everything. just he is the highest place he has the preeminent priority of my heart the more you give Christ that place that attention that devotion that loyalty that surrender that spot in your calendar that affection in your heart the more you do that then the more that you are prepared for whatever this world might throw at you so much we can say about this book. We're talking about Jesus Christ having the highest place in your heart that, that, that becomes your filter of any suffering or any harm that comes your way, any evil, any pressure from the world, any persecution. There's a fourth line of defense. 
Number four, let's call this one preparation. Preparation to respond, or you could say preparation to answer. This is here in verse 15 as well. Now, here's the flow of the the context here. I mean, eventually the world is going to say, how can you take all the heat that we have sent your way? How come you don't retaliate like the rest of the world? Why can't we get you rattled up? It's because you're prepared for this very moment. How? The gospel prepared you for this very moment. For this suffering this hostility. I mean, if you live out the first three points, I'm telling you, they're, they're going to ask you to explain yourself. That was, that, that's what happened to Martin Luther. What do you have to say for yourself with all these people that uh, are following what you're teaching them? I mean, the fact that your stuff contradicts the Catholic Church. What do you have to say about that, Luther? By the way, did you understand... Do you know, do you understand, Martin Luther had no intention of leaving the Catholic Church at all. The Catholic Church forced the issue that way. He said, I'm trying to show you guys where this, where we've gone wrong as a church. And you don't even want to listen to this. But he was prepared The fact that your stuff contradicts the Catholic Church, what do you have to say about that, Luther? He was ready. (laughs) Look at the second half of verse 15. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We've got to be prepared to answer, right? To give an answer. I realize a lot of people take this verse as some sort of formal answer, like a, almost like an apologetic or courtroom type of response or defense for the faith I don't think that's what Peter is saying here at least it's not limited to that when he says always be ready to make a defense it is the word apologia we get apology from that word but it's not an apology where you're saying I'm sorry you know that's not what this word is saying It's also not used, I think, for some sort of legal defense or apologetic here in this context. Notice the word always. Peter's talking about being prepared for a life situation that is always. So it's either formal or informal. Like Luther, that's formal, or like any other person that you might meet on the street. You're just ready with an answer. Well, you notice that it doesn't say to everyone who asks you to give an account for the faith that is in you, but it says for the hope that is in you. Not talking about your personal faith, listen, but the Christian faith that you have put all your hope in. They want to know how it is that you have put all your eggs into the basket of Christianity. How could you do that? So this is able to explain what you believe and why you believe it. And I think the, the word hope, is, is, it's, been, it's key. It's been the key for, for uh, Peter all throughout First uh, Peter. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
His grace, mercy has caused us to be born again. Chapter 1, verse 21, redeemed us so that our faith and hope are in God. God, He gave Jesus glory for that purpose so that we could have hope. Now what Peter is saying here simply is this, that we have to be prepared to be able to defend what we believe that has saved us. Able to give people enough truth that they can understand what our hope is connected to. That's what we're talking about here. Able to tell people why you believe what you believe. We're not talking about arguing with people, getting getting into arguments. That's not what he's talking about here. We're not talking about standing up and yelling at people with some kind of megaphone on a corner street with threats of condemnation. We're not talking about that. You see, how do you know that's not what he's talking about? Look for yourself, verse 15, with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness is the word for meekness, also translated humility in some places. It means power under control. And the other word, reverence, is the word for fear. Same word from earlier, phobos. What is the, the, the fear all about? It's where you fear getting it wrong. Paul was this way, by the way. Colossians 4, chapter 4, verse 3. Pray for me that God would, would open up a door for the word. Verse 4. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. That's what fear looks like. I just want to get this thing right. 2 Timothy 2, similar thing, verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their sense and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we're talking about being able to clearly, thoughtfully, and gently connect people to the truth of the gospel for salvation. Being able to do that. Now, the more you are connected and understanding the gospel that way, the better you'll be able to have a defense against the world's hostility. Articulating. We're talking about being able to articulate the gospel. Here is what my hope is tied to. Here is how you can have hope that is living. Hope that doesn't disappoint. Hope that isn't like the world's hope, but is, you know, the, the world's hope is, is more like Disney, wish upon a star. You know what I mean? Christian hope is hope that is certain, that is connected to absolute and authoritative truth. So what Peter is saying is, here's how you respond to the world's hostility. Have a passion for the good. See it as a privilege. Set Jesus Christ as the preeminent priority of your heart. Be as prepared as you can with an answer for why it is that you follow Jesus Christ as your hope. Let me just give you two more as we close here. Number five, purity from conscience. Purity from conscience. Pure conscience. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience 
so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Present tense, keep continually having a conscience that is good, that is clean, that has no taint. It's a powerful line of defense. The conscience either accuses you or defends you. The conscience, you could say, either accuses you or or excuses you. It either convicts you guilty or confirms you innocent. The conscience is the Lord's alarm clock within you that he put inside of you to go off when bad is coming. When you're about to cross the line. So how does this work as a line of defense? If your conscience is clear when you face the critics and, and the hostility and the persecution and the accusation, you're not going to feel guilty. One of the reasons why today the world can come down so hard on many professing Christians and many so-called churches is because there is so much guilt. It doesn't matter the direction. They can see that we look like the world and so we don't take our Bible seriously and so there's obviously guilt inside there. Our marriages look like theirs. Our habits look like theirs. Our language sounds like theirs. It's it's hard to set up a line of defense when there are few churches keeping a good conscience. They slander and they have good reason. And you know, beloved, you can spot people in churches that struggle with keeping a good conscience. You know how? Because they lack humility. Someone comes around and criticizes And the first response for so many is what? Defense. And if it's not defense, it's diversion. Get them looking, you know, the other way. Over there. You redirect their questions. They're asking you, hey, this looks fishy. Tell us about it. And you just redirect them. You know what humility looks like? It's like the disciples who all thought that they might have betrayed Jesus. So, one of you is going to betray me. Is it, is it me? See, why do they say that? You, hey, you have, are you guilty? Do you have something you got to tell, tell me? I'm just keenly aware of my sin. You're like I'm always blowing it before the Lord. I wouldn't have a hard time believing it was me. That's what a good conscience should look like. You honestly take the criticism to take an honest look. You allow the Lord to show you your heart. Remember 1 Timothy 4 from our study last few weeks, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. He's saying that to a pastor. Look at, make sure, make sure, make sure. After an honest look, I mean, well, let me just say this. Start by admitting that you're capable of doing things that they might be criticizing you of. That's one where you start. 
But after an honest look, the one who keeps a good conscience will be able to say, I looked and I found nothing. I looked, but I did look. It's a powerful line of defense. The world slanders, the conscience lets you know if it sticks. What does it mean to slander means to speak out against another? It's verbal abuse. It's the world shaming the church. Let me give you one last defense here so that we can bring our time to an end. Number six, let's call this one providence-based, the providence-based perspective on all factors. He ends it this way, verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for what, it, for what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, I'll give you the short version here of this. The key is that phrase, if God should will it so. This is the person who has the perspective that God might will suffering in my life. This could be God's hand. Isn't that the lesson that Job needed to learn? You didn't open your hand to say, well, it could be the Lord. It's better if your suffering has to do with the right things, but the perspective is, I might do the right thing and still suffer. What do you say now? Does that shake your doctrine? Does that shake your theology? Now think about that. What do you do with a person whom the world has tried to bring suffering into that person's life? but there's no budging and they still see God's hand and they still love God for it all. You know, you can read the stories of the martyrs in Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a copy of it right back there. They understood that God's providence is a mystery. Listen, but a beautiful mystery. They understood that. A good mystery. And they even embraced dying for him from unjust people. Let me conclude here. What you got this morning was just one strategy on how to respond to the world's hostilities. There's a really big one coming that he has in verses 18 through 22. The ultimate way to go through all the hostility the world that can, can throw at you is to see the victory of Christ and how he handled the cross and to learn from it, to learn from his suffering. And that's We're going to take a deep dive starting next Lord's Day on the suffering of Christ. And uh, it's going to be amazing, I'm telling you. Let's pray. Lord, we have just opened your word and we, we tried, Lord, to open our hearts. Maybe for some of us we were obstinate. Maybe others we were resistant. Maybe still others we were fearful of what might be in there and what you might see. Forgive us for ever being unwilling to just let you look into our hearts. You can, you can do it already anyway. Help us to be so willing. Pray, Lord, you would help us also to consider how it is that we might 
receive the suffering that we have in our life. And may it be the opportunity for the gospel to go out, that others might see it and come to the conclusion this must be an amazing God who can transform sinners and make them joyful in the face of suffering like this. We love you, God, and ask you to help us to become more like Christ in this way. In Jesus' name we pray.